Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. While most New England schools are still fine-tuning their reopening plans, some communities in rural Maine have already started. Is everybody feeling okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nobody has scratchy throats or coughs or... Mm-hmm. You tasted your breakfast, right? Yes. <laughs> From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll look at what it's like to be back in school. Plus, two sisters re-examine the racism they experienced while growing up in a predominantly white Massachusetts town. That white-centered perspective can get so internalized. As a black person who grows up there, it's like you learn, yeah, right, I'm, I'm other. And a group of fishermen and scientists, often at odds, are working together, collecting data to combat climate change. This data might not be directly influencing how I lobster the next two or three years, whatever I got left in the business, but it's going to help somebody. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We're inching closer and closer to students returning to school in New England. And while most districts are still putting the finishing touches on their reopening plans, a few communities in northern Maine that have to schedule a fall break for the potato harvest have already reopened this month. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg visited one of those districts in Aroostook County for a preview of what school might look like this fall. After five long months of being apart, sixth grader Charlie Pierce says she couldn't wait to go back to Mars Hill's Fort Street Elementary School earlier this month. I I was really excited to go back to school. It's a lot different, but I'm glad to be back to see all my friends and all the teachers and everything, but it's really different. Most of her morning routine at home is the same as it ever was. Wake up before the sun rises, feed the cattle outside, eat breakfast. But now before she gets in the car, Charlie and her three sisters grab their masks, and their mom, Amy, asks them a few questions. Is everybody feeling okay? (laughs) Nobody has scratchy throats or coughs or... Mm -mm. You tasted your breakfast, right? Yes. After they're dropped off at the school's entrance, they stand in a line six feet apart and walk towards a teacher, thermometer in hand, for a temperature check before going to class. Good job. Okay, you can go right to your class. Charlie Pierce says she's been okay with a lot of these changes, but some of them are hard to get used to. Well, we have to keep our distance, and we have to wear a mask, and... You can't hug anybody, so it's just really hard, and not being able to be right by your friend, it's really different. My friends kind of really wanted to hug me, I mean... We had talked about keeping our distance, because we are huggers by nature, (laughs) so yes, we don't often run into a friend where there's not a hug involved, so I had prepped them to keep in mind where you are and what we're doing here, so... 
The masks, temperature checks, and social distancing are all part of the new procedures at Fort Street Elementary, one of the first in the state to reopen this month. The school has always come back early to accommodate the three-week potato harvest break in the fall. Listen, the parents and the community have been waiting for us to go back to school for a long time. <laughs> Elaine Bollier is the superintendent for the district, MSAD 42 in central Larustic County, which currently has no active cases of COVID-19. She says while a few families have chosen to keep their kids at home, the overwhelming majority have said otherwise. The feedback that we got on those surveys was very clear. They wanted kids back in school. Bollier says the district started planning months ago for how to reopen safely. The eventual decision was to divide students into two groups. Half would go in the morning, half in the afternoon. Many parents would drive students to add more space on buses. Masks or face shields would be required. The district spent $10,000 alone this summer on disinfecting. And Bollier says because there are only a few hundred students in each school, class sizes could be kept to just five or ten kids, making social distancing easier. This is one time that it's great to live in rural Maine. But some retrofitting was required. Fans were added everywhere. Rooms with no windows required air purifiers. And administrators say they're trying to find ways to accommodate school staff members who are high risk. You know, if I was at a bigger school like Georgia, I probably wouldn't have come back. Samantha Drost is a high school social studies teacher for the district. She has an inflammatory disease, putting her at higher risk for the virus. Initially, Drost says she planned to teach on a screen to broadcast her lesson from her room while her students sat in another with the help of an aide. But Drost says she didn't feel connected to her students, so she decided to abandon the setup and teach them face-to-face. And I told them right up, I'm like, I am a high risk, so you just need to follow what I put out. You need to wear your mask, and we're going to make sure that we clean lots. And if we can do that, then we're going to stay in here. So far, at least, she says that's worked. Students are following instructions and keeping their masks on. That is, except for during five to ten minute breaks, in which a teacher will take their kids outside and give them a chance to spread out and remove their face covering. During one such mask break at the elementary school, teacher Derek Bedreau says he feels relatively safe and is glad that students are getting the emotional and social supports they need at school. My major concern is when it starts to get cold and when winter starts to come. Um, I really hope that there's something in place by then that'll help everybody to be more safe, uh, you know, on a national level, not just on a local one, because winters here get pretty chilly pretty fast. School officials say they're also concerned about the winter, and in particular, the flu season. But for now, says parent Amy Pierce, it's a relief that life is in some way closer to normal. You know, our kids are ready. They need this mentally, socially, for all kinds of reasons. They need to be with their peers. It's how we're meant to be. It's part of their growing and learning. School reopening challenges will likely be more difficult in the southern part of the state, where larger schools and continued transmission of the virus have prompted many parents and teachers to call on districts to continue remote learning this fall. Several communities have even pushed back the start of school until mid-September, but not in Mars Hill. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. While the number of new daily coronavirus cases have been declining in the U.S. since they peaked in July... Some regions of the country are still struggling, particularly in the South. The Northeast continues to fare better for now. Last month, New England Public Media's Karen Brown talked to early survivors of the virus who are hoping their experience will remind others to be cautious. 
In early March, Naomi London of Northampton, Massachusetts, started to get severe stomach issues and fatigue. But at the time, I thought I just had the flu or I ate something bad. When she was too weak to even feed her dog, she went to the hospital, but they sent her home with antibiotics. They didn't have enough COVID-19 tests to give her one. I was told I didn't meet the criteria. A few days later, feeling much worse and dehydrated, she went back to the ER at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. And this time, she tested positive for the coronavirus. At 71, London was a few years into retirement. She'd spent her career as a pediatrician, including several stints overseas doing humanitarian work. I worked during a dengue outbreak and and a measles epidemic, and I never got sick. And I had to come home to get COVID. She doesn't know how she caught the virus. She'd been out on errands before social distancing was the norm. But the day she was admitted to the hospital, that question was not her top concern. Her breathing was. The ICU doc showed me an x-ray. And I looked at it and said, this is the worst x-ray I've ever seen in my life. And he said, yeah, it's yours. I think we need to intubate you. She was on a ventilator for eight days. Afterwards, coming down from the sedation, she remembers a medley of songs looping over and over in her head. I kept hearing the Steve Goodman song, City of New Orleans. Then came a John Denver tune, and finally, the Jewish Mourner's Cottage. It took about three days to feel lucid again and to take full breaths on her own. From there on, I actually made, you know, really rapid progress every day. At about the same time, Dwayne Long, a 49-year-old software analyst from Beckett, got a bad cough. Chest discomfort. The headache. And, oh, a terrible headache. His wife Paula drove him to Berkshire Medical Center for a COVID-19 test. While they waited at home for the results, he started having serious breathing problems. Paula remembers him sitting in his recliner all night, and by morning... It was extremely scary. He used slightly blue tinge. He's like, I, I, we got to do something. We got to go in. Dwayne went to the hospital by ambulance and didn't see his wife for another five weeks. At first, doctors gave him oxygen through a face mask. He begged them not to put him on a ventilator. Dying from suffocation has always been my biggest fear. So the thought of them connecting me to a machine to do it, that can power be turned off, terrified me. But when he got sick enough, Paula, talking to doctors on FaceTime, gave permission to intubate him. I just remember telling him, no, you're going to fight it. You'll survive. You're going to work through it. It was touch and go for 21 days, on and off the ventilator, including a bout of pneumonia. Then he experienced what's called an ICU delusion. He didn't know what was real and what wasn't. He occasionally saw the animated polar bears from Coca-Cola commercials dancing on his bed. The way they explained it was, your brain requires input. If it doesn't get input, it makes up its own. And I was sitting in a dark room by myself with the door closed. So I created my own world. And unfortunately, it wasn't a happy place. When he was finally ready to leave the ICU, he vaguely remembers the nurses coming into his room. Like a flurry of stormtroopers unplugging me from the wall. Let's give it to Mr. Long. And then wheeling him down the hallway, lined with cheering staff, recorded here by the hospital. They were actually more emotional than I was, but that was because, well, I don't, I was zoned. They, they had good meds. It was the best I think one of our best days since, like, you know, Bridgie was born, it, it felt so great. 
By that time, Paula and their teenage daughter had also tested positive for the coronavirus with only mild symptoms. Dwayne has diabetes and an autoimmune disease, which could explain why his version was so much worse. But doctors aren't always sure why the virus hits people differently. Well, my name is Renee Manley. I'm actually a disabled vet. Manley, who's 52, has been suffering from COVID-19 symptoms for more than three months. When she talked to me on Zoom from her Springfield home, her face was in the dark, the curtains drawn. The light really bothers my eyes. It's part of the virus, but I'm going to try to open the blind. Unlike Dwayne Long and Naomi London, Manley's symptoms developed slowly. In March, she got a sore throat, a couple weeks after volunteering at the soldiers' home in Holyoke. Then she lost her sense of taste, though it took her a while to notice. I was throwing food out because I thought it was bad, because I couldn't taste it. Gradually, she developed aches and pains, severe stomach problems, body chills. And it's like a a teeth-chattering type of chill, like you're literally freezing. But when she went to the emergency room, doctors told her she wasn't sick enough for a COVID-19 test. Over the next few weeks, as she got better and worse, she went back to the ER three times. One doctor told her, based on the symptoms, there was no doubt she had the coronavirus. But she still wasn't tested, nor admitted to the hospital. So I remember driving home, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I said, you know, I'm in this by myself, literally. Manley lives alone, and when breathing got difficult, she monitored her oxygen levels with an over-the-counter oximeter on her finger. She knew a healthy level was around 95%. You know, I had those that one week where they were really you know, in the 80s, in the low 80s. In the Um, low 80s, and you didn't go to the hospital. I I wrote it out. She still gets headaches and fatigue. Her heart sometimes races. Her nights alternate between chills and sweats. But without life-threatening symptoms, she says many doctors have been dismissive, like the on-call physician at her primary care practice early one morning. He said, well, there's nothing wrong with you, and there's nothing I can do, so um, take a couple of Tylenol. And then he hung up. Manley is not counted among the official COVID-19 cases for Massachusetts. By the time she was tested, her results were negative. She thinks either the active virus had left her system or the test was wrong. So she still keeps far away from others and hasn't been with her adult son, who lives in Greenfield, since March. She often looks out her window in Springfield's 16 Acres neighborhood to see people having backyard parties with no masks. I'm really stunned and shocked that people are still not taking this seriously. You know, if they could see what I was going through, they would wear two masks. Just as the illness varies greatly case by case, so does recovery. When Dwayne Long returned from the hospital, he was so wiped out he needed a walker to get around the house. The bathroom's 20 feet away, and that was like running a marathon. Six weeks later, he still coughs, but he could recently take a walking tour around the mansions of Newport, Rhode Island. What's most frustrating is what the virus has done to his memory and mental sharpness. He often can't find words. Um, Can't get it again because you already had it. Immunity. You're immune. But he can still ask the big existential questions. Why am I here? If all those people that were sick, as sick or less sick than I was, they didn't make it. So why am I still here? Greater power questions. Naomi London, the retired pediatrician, considers herself lucky, too. It took her more than a month to rebuild muscle strength, but now she's 95% back to normal, able to walk her dog and get groceries. I think the last thing to come back has been my concentration. I'm just sort of starting to 
you know, read for more than like five minutes at a time. She'd like to know if she has immunity, but just in case, she never goes out without a mask. She donates her blood plasma as treatment for other COVID patients, and she's had some insights about life. That it's unpredictable and fleeting, and if you're going to um, mend fences with people, now's the time to do it. 20 years ago, London had a falling out with a friend. After she recovered from COVID, she reached out, and now they're back in touch. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. That story originally aired in July. When COVID-19 hit New England, programs that help people who use and inject drugs had to rethink their approach. Connecticut Public Radio's Nicole Leonard went out with providers in Hartford as they sought to reach people struggling with addiction. A young man stands with his girlfriend in front of an RV truck parked alongside Barnard Park in Hartford. He reaches through an opening in a screen door and drops empty used syringes into a medical waste bucket, counting as he goes. It's 82, right? Yep. 83, 85. Greater Hartford Harm Reduction Coalition Ambassadors Carlos Santiago and Annie Plord put together a bag full of clean needles, alcohol wipes, tourniquet ties, and other supplies that someone who injects drugs may need to stay safe while using. Alcohol pads? Yeah, yeah I gave you alcohol too. Need some more? Yeah. Do you need Narcan? Um, you got, you got, you got some? These days, they're also handing out bags with masks, gloves, hand sanitizer, and soap. Hey, do me a favor. Stop touching your face. Here. I know. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. Bye, guys. Harm reduction and syringe services programs are designed to help people who use drugs by decreasing their risk of contracting diseases like HIV and hepatitis, which they can get from reusing dirty needles. Programs also distribute naloxone, the opioid reversal medication, which can help save people from a fatal overdose. The Greater Hartford Coalition also connects people to shelter, food, health care services, counseling, and addiction treatment if they want it. Before the pandemic, many of these services were offered with hugs, handshakes, and close one-on-one communication. But social distancing and COVID-19 precautions have caused more than 40% of syringe programs nationwide to scale back services, according to a recent CDC survey. Mark Jenkins, executive director of the coalition, says from the beginning, they've had to come up with ways to continue to care for a vulnerable population and keep everyone safe from the virus, including staff members. It actually just plunged us into a dual pandemic or epidemic, if you will. We're still right in the middle of an opioid epidemic. Daniel Raymond says other organizations around the country have been grappling with the same questions and concerns, especially as people experience increased levels of isolation. He's the deputy director of planning and policy at the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Nobody was able to really anticipate how long this would play out or the twists and turns that this pandemic has taken. And so the big question is whether The supplies, the strategies, the tools, the resources that people have been using to protect themselves from HIV and other infections and overdose risk 
that worked last year will be sufficient in this time of heightened isolation. He also worries that the pandemic may cause health-related consequences, like spikes in disease transmission, overdoses, and drug use, in the long term. I think that's the big fear, is that despite our best efforts, that we start slipping backwards. By 10 a.m., Annie Plored and Carlos Santiago, both in recovery themselves, have already seen more than 70 people at the RV site in Hartford, and they keep coming. Plored says their small team works together to stay safe while in the field. And despite the risks, that's where they want to be. You know, every once in a while, like, we'll have to be like, hey, like he says, hand sanitize. <laughs> Go wash your hands. You know, like, we catch each other, but, you know, we, like I said, we're a family. We do what we can. We try to keep each other safe, try to keep them safe. It's not easy by any means. They don't know what the coming months might bring, but the duo says they know it's important to be out helping people who may otherwise be left to battle addiction, homelessness, and the pandemic alone. So, you know, we, we, we do what we can to work with people and to help them. But, like, you know, out here, as far as the COVID, like, I just, I, I, I hope we see an end to it soon. It doesn't look like it. It baffles me. Like, I never thought this would be the world that I would live in. But... It is. We're here, and the only thing we can do is stay as safe as possible. Researchers are conducting ongoing studies to determine how much disease and death from addiction can be linked directly to the pandemic. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nicole Leonard. Last week on Next, we asked you, our listeners, what do you think about the state of activism today? We wanted to know how you personally hold people accountable for insensitive or racist comments, or at least how you're trying to do so. We got an email from listener Marianne Ward from Burlington, Vermont, who says she does not think that's her responsibility. She said, quote, why does anyone think they have the right to hold anyone accountable for their speech? People do have the private right to believe as they do and speak as they wish, don't they? Unquote. So what do you think? Are you more inclined to speak up when someone says something you think is insensitive? Or like Marion from Vermont, do you think that's not your place? Share your comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. Coming up, two Black sisters reflect on the racism they endured growing up in a predominantly white town. Plus, often at odds, some fishermen and scientists are collaborating to combat climate change. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York.
Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. As some Americans continue taking a hard look at racial injustice, Black people across the country are coming forward with their stories of enduring racism. Among them are sisters, Emily and Caroline Joyner, who wrote a blog post about their experiences growing up in the predominantly white town of Southboro, Massachusetts. They say they want to challenge small towns like theirs to acknowledge and confront local issues around race. WBUR's Kyrie Thompson spoke to them and has the story. Caroline and Emily Joyner say they're not activists or experts on combating systemic racism, but they do know what it's like to grow up black in a place like Southboro, a town 20 miles west of Boston that's over 80 percent white and less than 2 percent black, according to recent U.S. census estimates. I tried to mute my blackness in a lot of ways just to sort of get by as a way of survival. And that's something that I'm sort of getting closer to understanding that um, and sort of unlearning. That's Caroline, who is now 27 years old and is a performing arts publicist in Brooklyn. Emily is two years older and is working on a doctorate in psychology at Boston College. That white-centered perspective can get so internalized as a black person who grows up there. It's like you learn, yeah, right, I'm, I'm other. The sisters are biracial, but Caroline says their lighter skin tones didn't shield them from white high school classmates using racial slurs around them and mocking their natural hairstyles, while also appropriating black culture. I remember kids being like, do you know how to like, teach me how to Dougie, like dance moves? And I was like, I don't know. I've grown up in the same environment as you. Or this one girl was just like, black power, Caroline, am I right? Or something like that, where I was like, wait, what? And Emily says the environment in the classroom wasn't much better, as teachers avoided broader conversations about race. Seeing black culture commodified and held up while also feeling like my own blackness was shameful, different, and embarrassing. And don't bring it up because it's rude. It was just such a lot of contradictions to hold. The Joiners are processing these memories again after the killings of George Floyd and other black people by police. For the sisters, the police shooting of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta especially hits home. One of the two Atlanta police officers involved in the deadly shooting of a black man in a Wendy's parking lot is a Massachusetts native. Devin Brosnan grew up in Southboro. He was not the shooter in the high-profile death, but he has been placed on administrative leave. Emily and Caroline say they rode the school bus with Brosnan as kids. Three years ago, another of their old schoolmates, Matt Colligan, was spotted marching at the Unite the Right rally alongside white supremacists in Charlottesville. Caroline says she sees a connection between these two incidents and the unconscious racism she and her sister experienced growing up. It was more just like not to just personalize it around these two people and individualize the racism. It was like, oh, of course they're a product of towns like this. It wasn't surprising to us. The Joyner stories resonate with me because I lived them myself as a biracial black boy in the white suburbs of Hobart, Indiana. I still remember the humiliation of being called the N-word when I was eight years old and the terror I felt at age 17 when a Hobart police officer put his hand on his gun as he approached me in my own driveway one night. And Emily says people from Southboro took notice after the sisters wrote a blog post about their childhoods. White people I grew up with, you know, send me messages like, oh my gosh, your article really woke me up. It was such a gut punch. But Caroline says they aren't speaking out now to help people achieve some personal racial enlightenment. 
They want to target the systemic racism at the root of the problem. In order to dismantle that, you have to realize how you've been benefiting off this system and then actively try to dismantle it. Not just peace and love, like unity. What is my place in this? And what am I doing to challenge it? The joiners say Southboro isn't the only place in need of soul-searching about race. They say it's time for every community to think about how they perpetuate those systems and unlearn them, just as we've had to. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kyrie Thompson. Fishermen and scientists haven't always gotten along. Fishermen say scientists dismiss their knowledge as anecdotal and want to overregulate the industry. Scientists say hard data is needed to use the ocean responsibly. But as climate change rapidly alters the ocean, more scientists and fishermen are working together. And the cooperation is starting to pay off, even in the middle of a pandemic. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. Let me get by you here to get some rope. Mark Schweitzer is a commercial lobsterman out of Port Judith, Rhode Island. So we're going to tie this on. I live in fear of someday throwing this over without a rope attached to it. He's not fishing today. You're going to get a splash here. I don't think you'll get wet. Well, he is fishing, just not for fish. He's fishing for data. And that thing he just threw overboard is a foot-long, 30-pound scientific instrument that measures ocean temperature, depth, and salinity. After about 20 seconds, he pulls it up, plugs it into a beat-up iPad, and downloads the data. There we go. Wow. Schweitzer is collecting data for the Shelf Research Fleet, a small group of commercial fishermen working with scientists trying to understand how climate change is affecting ocean conditions and fish stocks. This data might not be directly influencing how I lobster the next two or three years, whatever I got left in the business, but it's going to help somebody. It's going to help somebody chasing squid. It might help somebody chasing lobsters. So it's good for me to do stuff like that. Yeah. The ocean is warming quickly, and some parts are getting more salty. That affects New England fisheries. More black sea bass are moving in, short-finned squid are booming, and lobsters are slowly moving north to colder waters. I think trying to pinpoint what each species is doing and how they're reacting is really important. That's Aubrey Ellertson. She oversees the research fleet for the Commercial Fisheries Research Foundation. I think a lot of people talk about climate change as this global phenomenon, but it's really become to affect people at a much more local and regional scale. I recorded that interview with Ellerson at the end of February. Shortly afterwards, another challenge hit the fishing industry, COVID-19. With tourism down and restaurants at low capacity, Ellerson says many fishermen have been struggling, working just as hard but getting a lower price for their catch. But despite the social upheaval and economic stress, the research has continued. Of course it has, says lobsterman Mark Schweitzer tough to define essential workers, but certainly monitoring the health of the oceans is essential. And that's not all going to go away because, you know, a percentage of our population is ill or is hunkering down because of the virus. The research fleet's been operating since 2014, and the data they've collected is proving useful. 
For instance, it's helping scientists understand how warm, salty water spinning off the Gulf Stream may be contributing to marine heat waves and the boom in shortfin squid. Scientists say the fishermen's contribution is especially valuable now, with several federal research missions canceled due to COVID-19. Now I'm on alert all the time because I know I can get an email and somebody will say, hey, I saw this. Make sense out of it, Mr. Oceanographer. Glenn Gowarkowitz is a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He says the fishermen have given him information he could never get otherwise. But making sense of it all isn't easy because climate change has turned the ocean topsy-turvy. We have these extreme events going on, whether it's a strong winter storm or whether it's a marine heat wave. At the same time, that slower, inexorable warming is going on. And that's why it's so difficult to make one story out out of climate change. There's one story Gowarkowitz hopes to tell, the one about fishermen and scientists working together to figure out what's going on. He says that's the only way to protect both the ocean and the fishermen. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Barbara Moran. Sticking with the environment, since the coronavirus pandemic began, Massachusetts has seen an increase in recycling as much as 15 to 20 percent. But that bigger load comes with new challenges. WCAI's Eve Zukoff reports. At the Bourne Solid Waste Management Facility, everything has its own smell. Uh, You know, you get the gas smell, old trash smell, new trash smell, recycling smell. There's a lot of different smells, and if you've been around long enough, you'll know the difference. But This is new recycling smell? This is new recycling smell. This is it. That's Dan Barrett. General manager of Bourne's Waste Management Facility, where thousands of tons of recycling are sent each year. After driving his truck past mounds of compost and piles of old bikes and beach chairs, he pulls into a warehouse. This is our single stream transfer station. This was actually meant to be a maintenance garage. But as time went on, the importance of recycling overtook the need for a new maintenance garage. Now the site is dominated by a mountain of household recycling, in part because everybody's home. More packages are being ordered, more attics are being cleaned, and more yards are being trimmed. That's what we see here. Obviously you see a mix. You see some plastic in there, that old uh, wash bucket there. Um, There's a little bit more fiber in there. Everybody's ordering stuff and it's getting delivered to their house. There's a chewy box. And that's probably why you're seeing a lot more cardboard in this stuff that you would normally see. The bump in recycling since the start of the pandemic might seem on the surface like a good thing. But at waste transfer stations in towns all around the region, it's a problem. Because now they need to manage and pay for the recycling in new ways. So I heard the best terminology the other day from the foreman in Wellfleet, and he called it Corona Recycling. (laughs) This is Carrie Parcell, the CAPE's own recycling and solid waste expert with the state's Department of Environmental Protection. By corona recycling, he meant having to change the way recyclables were collected, hauled, and tipped to maintain safety for not only his employees, but for the general public. To manage the higher volume of waste and fears about transmitting disease, early in the pandemic, transfer stations had to cancel residential drop-off services for yard waste, composting, car batteries, and more. 
Now, most of these services are open again, but municipal recycling programs are still struggling for reasons that precede the coronavirus, reasons that include changes in the global market for recycled materials. The result is that for several years now, recycling has not been a moneymaker. In fact, it's been costly for towns to run their programs. Well, the town has uh, offered free recycling to all residents for a number of years. And that basically began when recycling had value. Dan Santos, the director of public works in Barnstable, says he had to make hard decisions to manage costs. But in the last four or five years, the recycling market has changed dramatically to the point where most recyclables actually cost money to get rid of. So this summer, Barnstable, like many other towns, has eliminated its free recycling program. Now, for residents to get rid of their old newspapers, glass bottles, and tin cans, they'll have to buy an annual sticker for $250 or pay for every visit to the transfer station. Things aren't free anymore. We were subsidizing this with our cash reserves, and you can only do that so long until you run out of money. So at what point does the recycling sticker become too expensive? Household budgets are tight and a commitment to the environment can be costly. It's a big question, but for now, the dedication to recycling locally remains a source of pride for people like Dan Barrett. He stands, hands on hips, in front of his mountain of discarded cardboard and other recyclable cast-offs. I would call this pile pretty darn good. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. After the break, who goes to the movies right now? And what are they seeing? Plus, polo, a sport fans can actually attend. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Technically, movie theaters are allowed to be open with restrictions in all six New England states. But most indoor movie screens remain dark for now. WGBH's Craig Lamalt visited one theater in Massachusetts that's trying to make a go of it, though, under the new limitations. John Akmal and his daughter drove about 45 minutes from Malden to get to the West Newton Cinema. This is the only place I can find open, you know, so in Massachusetts, pretty much, as far as I could tell, every, every other place was closed, so we're here. There are some open now, including some AMC theaters around the state. But the West Newton Cinema opened back up in mid-July, and a few movie buffs like Akmal are happy to be back in a theater. He says he went to a drive-in recently, but it's not the same as being here. You know, the popcorn when you walk in, you can smell it, the feel of getting in your seats. It's not in the same in the car. You're listening through your car speakers. They came to watch The Goonies, and as they settle in, there's only one other person in the theater. Come on, guys. The West Newton Cinema usually features smaller, artsier releases, but also shows some pretty popular movies. 
For 42 years, it's been owned by David Bramante and his brother. Then, in March, they were shut down by COVID-19. Financially, it was devastating. Bramante's daughter raised $40,000 in an online GoFundMe campaign for people who want to keep the theater afloat. But that only went so far. The fixed costs uh, are in the tens of thousands of dollars a month here. So it was a huge help, but... You know, we're on, we're on our own now. The state's reopening plan says there can't be more than 25 people in any room, including theater auditoriums. We went to reserve seating in the chairs. So in this case, the theater we're in is 225 seats. We took that down to 25 seats. And then we socially distanced seating. He also upgraded the air filters in the building's HVAC system. People don't talk typically in movies, right? So there's very little transmission going on and there's a lot of distance. So it's a, it's a pretty safe environment to spend an hour or two in watching a movie, I think. Yeah. That is, as long as they don't show anything that has people laughing. Right. No, it's, uh, we're going to specialize in somber movies. Actually, just what they can show is a bit of a catch-22. Many theaters aren't opening because there are few new movies being released, and distribution companies won't release new films because most theaters aren't open. For now, Bramante's mostly showing classics, which cost less to screen, and he's trying to keep other expenses down, doing things like turning on the AC just when they're screening movies. It's the air conditioning that's really expensive to run in the summertime. It was already the kind of theater where the person who sold you a ticket might also sell you popcorn and then run into the booth to start the movie. Now it's just him and one paid employee at a time. And I don't have anything else to do. (laughs) Might as well come in here and run movies. But so far, not a lot of people are coming to see each screening. High single digits, so eight, nine. Some shows nobody comes in for. And Bramante doesn't know how long he can keep it up. You know, I'm not, I'm, but I'm trying to build it up. If I don't open, I won't get anywhere. I won't, I won't know what I can do or can't do. It's a good time to go to the movies, he says, because it provides an escape from reality. Also, there's popcorn. Ellie, what do you want? I don't want peanut. I want Lego. Lisa Marie Annunziata came with her four-year-old Allie and her five-year-old Cole to see The Wizard of Oz. She says the kids just found out they won't be going back to Wayland schools in the fall. And we're pretty down about it. So when we found out from a friend last night that this theater is back open, it was sort of a pick-me-up for them to be able to come back in. When the movie starts, they're the only ones in the theater. For an hour and 42 minutes, it's an escape. And yet maybe there's something familiar right now in a story about waking up in a suddenly changed world where you're threatened by something wicked, but also where, with some brains, heart, and courage, it's possible to finally, someday, get back to where you once were. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Craig Lamolt. Fans aren't allowed at Red Sox games, and the only way Celtics fans can watch their team in the playoffs is on a screen. But there is a sport in New England that fans can attend. Polo. You know it, right? Competing teams ride horses and chase balls, whacking them with things that kind of look like croquet clubs made for giants. 
polo is in full swing this summer in Newport, Rhode Island, albeit with masks and social distancing. So Antonia Ayers-Brown of the Publix Radio went to a game. Oh, brilliant play by Dan Keating, a lovely tail backhander on the near side. Minnie and Dr. Dave Bullock. Dan Keating makes his way across the field on his horse, Juicy. She's young but fast, a former racehorse and one of the best horses on the field. Keating hits the ball and glides forward, successfully completing a pass to himself. He does well. Dan Keating coming through at speed. Rory comes across. Rory with a nearside backhander just stops it, leaves it in front of Keating. I think Keating might actually convert this. Can he? No, he can't. I don't believe Many sports fans have gone months now without this kind of commentary, at least outside of ESPN reruns. But in recent weekends, spectators have heard it live in Newport. Newport Polo received Rhode Island's go-ahead to begin their summer season back in early June, and matches have been held every Saturday since. The usual appearances from traveling international teams have been canceled, but spectators have still turned out to watch local players compete in face masks. The fact that we're able to play, we would have done just about anything. Uh, we would have, would have worn a suit of armor if we had to. Clark Curtis is a Newport Polo player who comes to help out on his weeks off. Cheering with the warmth of a parent and the confidence of a coach, he knows all the horses and players' names. And the masks, he says, are only a minor inconvenience, a small price to pay to be one of the few sports that can proceed this summer. Newport Polo is now operating at one-fourth capacity. Attendance has been in the hundreds, a strong but still significantly smaller turnout than the thousands of people expected at games in previous seasons. This year's matches, though, have attracted more polo newcomers. Sports fans seeking the thrill of a live game, any game, and even families looking for something to do outside their homes on a hot Saturday. I'm very conscious that obviously a lot of people go polo. You know, what are the rules? How does this work? People on horses playing hockey. What, what's this all about? That's William Crisp, Newport Polo's commentator, whose quips and conspicuously British accent set the tone for the matches. He says his job is to make the games intelligible and enjoyable to guests, especially while people are in need of a safe outlet this summer. Stacy Mills's two simultaneous tailgates stand out as perhaps the most elaborate, with food, drinks, and even decorative accents on the serving tables. She and several guests are wearing signature Newport polo jerseys, and she's carefully spaced out lawn chairs at a distance from one another. I've had so many people call and say we'd love to come to polo. And my uh, colleague, uh, I said, God, everyone's available. And she said, well, they, you know, everyone's schedule's pretty open. <laughs> Mills passes out small square spectator guides to first-time guests with all the information they need to enjoy the game. The match of the day is the Vanderbilt Cup. As a nod to Newport's history during the first Gilded Age, local players face off as the Vanderbilts versus the Astors, named after the wealthy rival families that feuded in New York and Newport in the late 19th century. Spectators were invited to dress up in Victorian hats, but few seemed to have heeded the theme. Toward the end of the field, Curtis lights a cigarette and eventually reclines on the grass, supporting himself on his elbow. He's played polo for about 20 years, and he says there's a misconception that only the elite and ultra-wealthy can appreciate the sport. If you want to set your silver tea set out and, and uh, have champagne and hors d'oeuvres, great. If you want to come in on your Harley after a day at the beach and hang out, that's great too. Everyone is welcome. He gestures to his own clothing, 
rubber slide sandals, ripped jeans, a t-shirt, and a worn baseball cap, as proof that Newport Polo isn't all tweed jackets and Range Rovers. But the time-worn traditions are still there, even with new rules in place. At halftime, spectators still stomp the divots. That's a curious polo ritual in which people wander onto the field to stomp down grass torn up by the horse's hooves. Rory and Sam take each other out with a big bang. Minnie gets a little touch. Keating has a nice By the time the clock runs out on the match's sixth and final period, a thick fog has settled on the field and the teams are tied. But that ends the Chaka and it's eight all. Someone has to win the Vanderbilt Cup. What are we going to do? Eight all. The players and their horses idle as visibility on the field dwindles and the referees confer. From the commentator's box, William Crisp seems to speak for the crowd. Seriously, guys, could you get this comedy on the road? The referees settle on a sudden death format, and the Astors quickly score, winning the game 9-8. The horses prance around the field as a final goodbye, wrapping up another week as one of the largest live sporting events in the Northeast. But by then, spectators and fans are already shuffling to their cars, ready to go home after a rare occasion to go out. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Antonia Ayers-Brown. And that's a wrap today. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. We've got a favor to ask you. We've got a listener survey out right now, and we'd love to know what you think about the show, what you like, what you think we could change. Head over to nextnewengland.org to fill out the survey. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. This week, we say goodbye to our summer intern, Daniela Luna. Daniela, thank you for all your hard work this summer. You brought great ideas and were a breath of fresh air. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.